This is HeartWise, offering practical tips and time-proven guidelines to make your life healthier, happier, and more fulfilling. Today you'll learn simple, Bible-based principles for building and maintaining optimum mental and physical health, all while deepening your relationship with your Creator. I'm your HeartWise host, Charles Mills. If I ask for a show of hands right now with the question, how many of you would like to have surgery performed on you, I more than likely wouldn't get all that many positive responses. However, if you did need surgery, our guest today could be of assistance. Why? He's a surgeon, and as such, knows how to keep us all as safe as possible during such procedures. As a matter of fact, the work he does can be a real lifesaver, and we'd all agree that that's a good thing. Dr. David King does his thing in Alaska, and he's here to talk to us today about surgery and some of the advancements that particular branch of the healing arts has made during our lifetimes. Dr. King, welcome to HeartWise. Thank you. Let's say that I needed to come see you for a surgical procedure. Let's say a gallbladder operation. What would be different in the process today as compared to 50 years ago when my gallbladder and me, as a matter of fact, were relatively new? 50 years ago, I guess better to start historically, 50 years ago we uh, were recognizing what a gallbladder did and had fairly good understanding of the physiology, at least a very similar understanding to what we have today. However, the ability to treat gallbladder disease in those days was a significantly bigger hurdle, I guess, because of the way the operation would be done compared to now. And oftentimes what barrier people have for having a surgery done is that fear or dread of the recovery period and the pain that is involved in that. And uh, many of the advancements in surgery, particularly in the past 20 years, have been aimed at overcoming that pain in the post-operative period, trying to uh, find ways to do operations, life-saving operations, or at least life-altering operations in such a way that there's minimal recovery. Hmm. Kind of the buzzword for today is uh, minimally invasive, right. meaning we uh, do as little as possible to uh, create painful incisions or painful conditions as we're attempting to treat and uh, remove a diseased organ. Well, now, you mentioned a word there or a phrase that was in the news just the other day with John McCain. They said a minimally invasive surgery. What was minimally invasive? How did they do that different than they would have 50 years ago to go and remove that blood clot from behind his eye? Minimally invasive has a very broad range of implications. In his particular case, I didn't read up on the surgery he in particular had. However, the newer procedures from a vascular perspective, use blood vessels to get to the area where you might otherwise have to make a fairly large incision or a very invasive incision or a very dangerous incision. Some procedures that we do, a great deal of the complication and danger comes from getting to the location where the diseased organ is rather than the actual uh, treatment of the diseased organ. And not knowing John McCain's case, but uh, presume that to get to the area where that blood vessel would be would require cutting through skull and getting around optic nerves and, and very, very dangerous places to be surgically where great complications could occur. But instead, accessing through the blood vessel meant you could get in from a location that was much safer but still achieve a uh, cure of the disease process. 
I guess, you know, we started out this conversation talking about the gallbladder. The gallbladder happens to live in a location that's difficult to get to using a normal incision because it requires cutting through a great deal of muscle that you use every time you move, every time you stand, every time you twist your body in any way, the abdominal muscles are used. And being able to get to that organ through very tiny incisions, which do not cut muscle, but rather spread it, has allowed us to do an operation that used to require a week or two in the hospital and six weeks of recovery and turn that into a outpatient surgery where you come in, get the surgery done, and then go home Mm. the same day and have a week to two weeks of recovery period. Just by way of changing the approach and not by way of changing the actual removal of the diseased organ, Now, you are a surgeon, and you are a trained surgeon, of course. Your training probably took place just prior to this great influx of non-invasive procedures. How did you learn? I mean, you learned to cut, open someone, go in and fix it, and then put them back together again and leave. How did you learn to do these other ways? I know Dr. Markham is always talking about heart surgery, where he starts down in the groin, and he does things in the heart from a long ways away. How do you learn that? Do they have a school they send you to, a new type of surgery school to teach you this stuff? That's a great question. So um, my training happened to uh, kind of bridge probably one of the very significant eras of shift between what I would term maximally invasive surgery right. into minimally invasive surgery. But I came along sort of, I guess, closer to the, to the ending point of that huge evolution in the way that we do surgery. So I got a fair amount of training in my training program in the use of minimally invasive techniques, at least for uh, the uh, typical general surgery conditions. However, There's a great deal of operations that during my time in training were not being done laparoscopically, which have transitioned over to this laparoscopic technique, which laparoscopic is just a term we use that means we use a video camera into the abdominal space. You've probably heard the term arthroscopic, which means a video camera into a joint space. Uh, Laparoscopic just simply means the abdominal space using a video camera as opposed to a joint space. But when we use these techniques, we can actually take a technique that perhaps we learned to do when we learned to do gallbladder surgery this way and transition it over to, let's say, the removal of a spleen or the removal of a part of the colon for colon cancer. But we use similar techniques, but uh, develop them in such a way as to allow for uh, accessing different organs or different disease processes. How do I, as a patient, know, or a potential patient, know that the condition that I am facing needs surgery as opposed to a change of diet or more exercise or a faith in God? How do do I know when I need to come see Dr. King as opposed to going and seeing my general practitioner? Many times that can come from a primary care physician who you've developed a relationship that's trusting. Mm -hmm. That person can help guide a patient in the right direction by understanding them as a person and uh, what may be going on with them physiologically. Most of the patients that I see have already seen a primary care physician and been advised to come and see me. Oftentimes, that's the best way for a patient to find their way to me after having been evaluated and kind of the whole picture, the whole body looked at. 
by this primary care physician and taking into account a person that they've developed a relationship. Now, sometimes it's cut and dried. It's significantly easier to look down and see an open wound that may be uh, gushing blood and know that you need immediate medical yes. attention. Yes. But it's often the things that are not evident on the outside that create conditions where uh, it's easier to ignore those things or just live somewhat in a state of denial that anything's going on. And uh, it just so happens that at least the cancers I treat tend to be insidious like that. They don't show up on the outside until it's far too late to achieve a cure for that cancer. And so uh, many times knowing when it's appropriate to either undergo screening tests or be evaluated for some vague symptoms is something that a person who doesn't have a deep medical knowledge can't make that decision for their for themselves. They need the help of someone with expertise, and that can be achieved either with a primary care physician or in some cases, sometimes people come directly to me if they have a little bit of knowledge but aren't quite sure. They may know their uh, condition may require surgery, and that's something that I can help them evaluate. And part of my job as a surgeon in some cases is to talk people out of a surgery that they may have convinced themselves they need. And then sometimes it may be my job to try to help them understand why surgery is necessary. Uh, many times that office visit, that clinic visit, is very, very important in determining what should be done. And, uh, uh, you know, the judgment that goes along with that is probably uh, what I would value the most out of a physician or surgeon that I was meeting with. You know, there's uh, a great deal of emphasis put on the uh, physical skill and uh, knowledge, which is certainly very important, but this is a judgment that one develops over uh, years of practice is something that I've come to value more and more the longer I've been in practice. All right, very good. We're talking with Dr. David King, a surgeon. He's practicing in Alaska. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, Dr. King, I want to ask you about something that I'm sure is on the minds of many people, even at this moment. There's a lump someplace in our body. It's a lump. It wasn't there before, and it's it's there now. And what do we do? Should we be afraid? Should we go and see you? Should we see our regular physician? What's going on with lumps in our bodies? So we'll talk to our surgeon, Dr. David King, on a return, so stay right where you are. I'm Dr. James Markham, and here's your biblical prescription for life. Have you ever longed for a different prescription, one without dangerous side effects? Everyone is concerned or should be concerned about side effects or adverse reactions when taking a medication. Well, today I want to explain to you what a biblical prescription is. Let's turn to James 1.5. This is our biblical prescription for today. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. Well, a biblical prescription is all about asking God for wisdom, wisdom from the scriptures to prevent and treat disease. The Bible applies to all aspects of life. In our biblical prescription for life segments, I will point out scripture, show the evidence-based science behind the scripture and how this scripture chemically changes us. For more information, I want you to go to our website. That's heartwiseministries.org. Have you ever wondered about your place on this earth, why you were put here, and what you can do to make a difference? Well, I've got good news. You can become a healer. 
I'm Nick Evanson, Production Manager at HeartWise Ministries, inviting you to help spread the news that optimum health is possible. Your family, friends, and coworkers don't have to be as sick as they are. There's information available to help them stop chronic disease in its tracks. Diabetes, heart disease, obesity, hypertension, they've all met their match. Your support of this ministry allows thousands to learn how to defeat these destructive enemies. Working in partnership with HeartWise Ministries also brings changes into your life, and believe me, people will notice. Your example becomes a healing light in a very dark and sick world. Take a moment and visit our website at heartwiseministries.org and add your support. Become a leader and share the gift that truly keeps on giving. Thank you. Welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Charles Mills. Our guest today, Dr. David King. He's practicing up in Alaska, and he is a surgeon. And Dr. King, you've identified some of the innovations that have happened in the last 50 years or so in the world of surgery. Let's talk about things that happen to us that can be kind of scary, but they might not be anything, but we don't know, and we want to know what to do. We discover a lump. That lump might be in our chest, our stomach, our leg, our arm, our head, our ear, our nose. Someplace there's a lump in our body. What should we do, and should we be doing it right now? My approach when someone comes to me with a concern of a lump may be different than uh, than what a person, I guess, should do immediately after finding one themselves that perhaps they had never noticed before. So uh, lumps happen to many, many people as we age. We get different lumps and different changes in our skin or patterns of our uh, tissues that we can feel on the outside of our bodies. And uh, and oftentimes those we just chalk up to, well, I'm just getting older. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, probably many times that actually might be the right answer, but not every time. And that's where the rub comes in, is how do we distinguish when something is just a part of the aging process and when something might be indicating a serious condition. Well, I would love to give just a simple set of criteria where, uh, where I could tell people this is a lump you should worry about and get looked at, and this is a lump you don't need to worry about. But unfortunately, it seems that all of the criteria that we've attempted to establish over the years and years we've been doing surgery have never borne out to be entirely accurate. I guess I think of an example that was told to me when I was in medical school training. It was a series of slides that we were shown of skin cancers, pictures, there were several slides that were benign conditions and several slides that were uh, skin cancers or malignant conditions of the skin. And uh, through that process, the, the person that was teaching us, who was a uh, pathologist, flipped these slides up and asked us as medical students to identify simply one thing. Was this a picture of something benign or of something malignant, meaning something uh, benign, of course, of no concern, uh, not really a big threat to life or limb, and then something malignant, which is a cancer that could end up spreading and taking someone's life. So our job was simply that, identify, is this really bad or is it no problem? And, uh, of course, um, as medical students, we knew essentially nothing. When he was done giving his presentation, he said, these same slides were shown to world experts in dermatopathology and their 
average rate of guessing correctly was about as good as a flipping a coin, wow. about 52%. And so there are many different things that can uh, mimic a malignant condition and malignant conditions that can mimic a benign condition. And for that reason, I generally advise people, get the help of an expert, see your primary care physician, and at least start the process of identifying what a new lump or, or change in your skin might indicate. It's not intended to scare patients, I guess, to tell them that there's that much ambiguity and unknown in medicine, but I think it's much better to be truthful about it. Oftentimes, even if something looks benign, we may pursue an aggressive course simply because the potential for something bad to be present is enough that we want to know for sure if something is going to be a threat to life. And so we'll often do biopsies, which is basically taking a sample of the tissue or removing the tissue, even if we suspect it's benign, just because we want to be sure. The consequences of making a mistake and assuming something's okay when it's not are far greater than oftentimes the, the pain or disability that may come from a small biopsy. Dr. David King is our guest today. He is a surgeon. Dr. King, how can I maximize my experience with you, with with surgery? Are there things I can do pre-surgery and post-surgery that'll protect me going in and keep me safe going out? Yes, there are. In fact, as this program has long espoused many of the good health principles that you've heard right here on this program, if you can achieve better health through living by those principles, you will be much better able to tolerate any surgery that might be uh, indicated for you and perhaps even avoid some of the common surgeries that I have to do. But if a person is faced with the knowledge in their current state of health that surgery is needed, perhaps not remotely but urgently, some of the things that one can do in the short term are uh, make sure that you've achieved a good state of nutrition by a good state of nutrition, meaning not to be undernourished. You know, generally we, uh, we see our society as being overnourished yes. and getting more so. But in some cases, even being obese or uh, carrying too much weight, even if you don't meet that threshold criteria for obesity, doesn't necessarily indicate that you have good nutrition hmm. um, overall. And so uh, being sure that your uh, diet is balanced in the different uh, nutritional factors so that you can synthesize the proteins that are required to heal. Mm. And so uh, there's actually fairly new techniques for people who are facing, let's say, a colon cancer surgery for trying to maximize nutrition in specific amino acids because they modulate the immune system and really help people to avoid those healing complications that sometimes occur in people mm-hmm. who... Uh, have to have fairly urgent surgery without time to prepare themselves over months Mm -hmm. by uh, improving their health. And uh, there's actually commercial formulas on the market that I use sometimes to help people that just require five days of drinking these specially formulated drinks. But all of those things are simply meant to kind of achieve what, over a short term, what we can achieve every day by eating a proper diet. And there's very good evidence of uh, a proper diet, meaning the further away we can move from a uh, animal-based high-fat diet over to a whole food plant-based diet, the better equipped we will be to handle any kind of illness and uh, surgery included in that. 
Would that diet and those lifestyle changes also help with the infection problem after surgery? I mean, we hear a lot about that, and, and that's a dangerous thing. Can we actually help ourselves as far as infection is concerned after the fact? Yes. In fact, those nutritional factors which I spoke of, probably the, the greatest benefit we see in that is in reducing post-operative infection. Mm-hmm. And uh, that idea of stimulating our immune system, which is a part of our body, honestly, that as a whole, we understand very poorly in medicine. It's been eluding us for probably centuries, but this idea of the immune system, which is an incredible, incredible part of our body's ability to fight off the disease process, if we can achieve a way to stimulate that immune system to fight off either infection or cancer or other bad disease processes, if we can do that, we can achieve a much better state of health and, in fact, heal much better from surgery if we can stimulate the immune system in just the right way so that the healing process takes place rapidly and completely. These newer formulations that we're coming up with for the ways that we can help maximize nutrition right before surgery are basically all intended to try to achieve that better state of health through modulating the immune system. And uh, honestly, we are... uh, we are only on the very, very cusp of that. We have uh, not achieved a very comprehensive knowledge of the immune system, except to know that, in general, many of these lifestyle diseases that we uh, suffer from in developed countries are immune-related, yes, if not yes. specifically caused by immune malfunction. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're saying that with common sense and, and using nutrition and diet and all the other things that we mentioned here on the HeartWise radio program and also on the HeartWiseMinistries.org website, that not only can we prevent a lot of the things that need surgery, if we have to have surgery, we can get through it better and heal faster if we are abiding by these rules. Am I saying the right things here? Absolutely. Wow, wow. Okay, in the last 60 seconds of the program here, look into your crystal ball. What's the future of surgery? What's going to go on that's going to be different 50 years from now than we have today? Most of the research that's happening today is is in this realm of minimally invasive surgery. Many people hear a great deal mentioned in uh, in the popular press about robotics, and about these techniques for accessing the heart through the uh, arterial or venous system. And I think uh, still a great deal of research is going to be going into developing new techniques that avoid the uh, more dangerous aspects of surgical technique. But I hope we also spend a great deal of time trying to understand more about this immune response and, um, and how can we achieve better outcomes or avoid the need for invasive surgery altogether, although it might take me out of my job. (laughs) Certainly uh, any of us who uh, are facing our own mortality as as we live longer and longer in this world would like to have ways to avoid those big and painful operations that some people have to face. Mm, Well, there you have given us our marching orders. Our job, listener, is to put Dr. David King out of business by taking care of ourselves. And you know what? I don't think he'll mind. I think that's the whole idea of why he's on this program. I really think that. Dr. King, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing these words of wisdom and guidance. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. David King inviting you to remain heartwise. Goodbye, everyone.
thank you for joining us today on HeartWise. If you'd like more information on how to build and maintain optimum physical, mental, and spiritual health, log on to heartwiseministries.org. HeartWise is a listener-supported program, and your partnership with us would be greatly appreciated. Once again, our web address is heartwiseministries.org. Ministries.org.